I've entitled this Bible study Predestination versus Man's Free Will. Now this can sometimes sound a little complicated, so I want you to uh, believe with me, but have you ever wondered about the difference between man's free will and God's sovereignty? What falls under man's free will? And what falls under the predestination? These are questions that come to our mind many times. So today and next week, we're going to be looking at three of the most controversial passages in the New Testament on this subject. Now, all three of these controversial passages of Scripture are all in the same chapter, all in chapter 9 of Romans. So I think it's interesting that they're all there in the same chapter. Now, there's a lot of controversy over how much God has already planned out for our life over which we have absolutely no control and how much falls under our choices, our decisions. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front that I believe it's our free will. But I believe that we can easily prove that in the Word. And rather than my just saying, well, this is what I believe, I want us to look into the Word of God. I want us to see what the Word of God has to say. But there are some tough scriptures in Romans chapter 9. And those scriptures have to be understood and explained or they'll throw us. We'll, we'll think we know exactly what we believe and we'll come upon some of those scriptures. And it, if we're not careful to study it in the light of the overall Word, it'll be easy. And we'll think, oh my goodness, what is this saying? Now some people hear the word sovereignty or they'll hear the word predestination and a little bit of fear begins to creep in because they think, oh no, God is sovereign, therefore I don't have any control over what is about to happen in my life. Now a lot of people's connotation of the word sovereignty and predestination boils down very simply to the fact that they believe that those words mean that God has planned everything in their life, period, you know, from the time that they were born. And they feel like they don't have any control whatsoever, that they have no choice. In fact, there are people who are known as seven-point Calvinists, and they believe that everything was planned even before they were born. They think they have absolutely no choice in anything. They believe that their destiny was predetermined by God before that they, were, they were born, and they believe that they can do nothing about the verdict. And these people get practically their entire doctrine from these three passages that we're going to be looking at in Romans chapter 9. Now these people are usually never evangelistic, and you can see why. Because why would you be evangelistic, and why would you worry about spreading the gospel if your destiny's already set, and if everybody else's destiny's already set, you know, there really wouldn't be that much reason to go out and try to tell somebody about Jesus or evangelize the world. It affects their view on healing, because if everything's already set, then if they're going to have some bad disease, they're going to have it. If they're not going to, they're not going to. And so they feel like that they don't have any choice in the matter. They feel like it's going to happen no matter what, so why not just not worry about it? In fact, this theory is the deciding factor in every single thing that they believe. Now, for some, the Calvinistic view is just a cop-out. It's spiritual laziness because they sort of like not having to do any warfare. Everything's decided, and so they can just kind of float along, and they don't have to worry about it. But for others, the Calvinistic view is just sad. For example, a lot of the Puritans were Calvinists. 
And they spent their entire life trying to be pure. That's where they got their name, the Puritans. And they, they tried their entire life to live just exactly like they were supposed to live in case that they might possibly be one of the chosen few that was going to make it into heaven. And they didn't know for sure, but they lived just right every moment in the hope that they would end up in heaven. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be horrible to live out our life and have no idea at the end of life whether or not we were going to go to heaven? You know, I just can't even imagine that. Because what keeps me going every day is when I wake up in the morning and I realize that the Lord is there with me and he's going to be with me all day and someday I'm going to spend an eternity with him. And I mean, I can face anything in the day when I get up realizing that God's there. But I can't even imagine what it would be like not knowing if you were going to spend your eternity with him. Now, I'm not expecting that there is going to be anyone that extreme that I'm going to be talking to today. But it is amazing how subtle the fear of predestination can be. If we don't understand the term and the word, there can be some subtle fear there when we hear that word. That's why God's wanting us to properly understand it because the more we understand, the more we have knowledge of the Word of God, the more the bondages release. Now, there's a tremendous amount of error in most teaching concerning the sovereignty of God and in most of the teachings that I've heard on the predestination of God. And a lot of suffering teaching has come from teachings on predestination, wrong teachings on predestination. In one church where we attended, the guest speaker stood up and he made this statement. He said, God in his sovereignty broke my leg so that he could get my attention and so he could get me to repent. And, you know, that was shocking to hear that. But he had accepted that as his lot in life because he believed that that broken leg had been predetermined, predestined by God. And you say, well, why would anyone believe that everything was already predestined, predetermined? Well, because there are some scriptures that without proper understanding, they could be misinterpreted to sound that way. So that's why I'm wanting us to look at them, and I want us to see what it's really saying. Now, it helps that all three of these passages are in the same chapter. I like that. We can go to the same chapter and look at all of them. But if you take the time to study the scriptures carefully, we're going to find that the word proves that it's man's choice that determines God's choices for us. We're going to find that it's man's choice that determines God's predestination. Now I want you to turn to Matthew 22, verse 14. In verse 14 it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. Have you ever read of that scripture and wondered about it? Many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, that might give us the impression that God's called all these people and then he looks out and he says, I'm going to choose you and you and you and you, but the rest of you, you know, you didn't make it. And sometimes people get that impression when they read that. But we need to realize that that word chosen is a qualifying term, similar to what would be used when it talks about an athlete who has been chosen to compete in a tournament. See, the ones who are chosen are those who have qualified themselves through discipline and, and through obedience. You know, let me give you this example. Let's say in a high school, they may make an announcement over the intercom that tryouts are tomorrow for the track team and we want everyone to try out. Okay, many are called. They're asking everybody to come in and try out. 
But the scripture says few are chosen. Okay, in the same way, after they've called everybody in to try out, then there's going to be a few who are chosen. Now, it's not going to be because they were the favorites of the coach. It's going to be because those few disciplined themselves and worked out and qualified themselves to be chosen for the team. Okay, that's exactly in the natural what the scripture is saying in here in Matthew 22, 14 in the spiritual realm. Okay, in the same way, God's invitation goes out to everyone spiritually. He says many are called. The invitation is to everyone. But only a few will qualify themselves to be chosen by going the way that God has laid out for us to go. See, it's the choice of the individual. So when it says many are called but few are chosen, we decide whether or not we're going to be one of the few chosen. Now God in his sovereignty chose to give man a free will. That was his choice. He could have done it another way. But in his sovereignty, he chose to give man a free will. And man's choices are what qualifies him to either be chosen or to be rejected. Now, if you'll make uh, some notes and later put them in the margin of your Bible at Romans chapter 9, if you'll put down the scripture references and, and some of the things that we're going to be looking at, you're going to find out that it's really going to help you. It'll not only help you to understand it, but you're going to have someone come to you at some point in time and they're going to have questions about Romans chapter 9 and it's going to really be nice to have some things that you can tell them to help them to sort it out. Now this next statement that I'm going to make will completely set you free if you have any fear in you about God's predestination. You cannot find the word predestination in the Bible ever being used in a negative sense. You need to write that down because that's so important. And I want to say it again. You'll never find the word predestination in the Bible ever being used in a negative sense. Speaking God toward his children. And that's so important. Because any time God predestines you for anything, it's always going to be for good with a capital G. Now, isn't that just like our God? See, what God has pre-planned out for man was good. God's plan for man was a good plan. His predestination, his plan was good. You know, have you ever found in the Word of God where God predestined someone to have to go to hell? No. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. The sovereignty of God, the predestination of God, those are good news words. You know, you've heard some pastors say, how on earth can someone take the good news and preach it bad? Well, I agree with that. How can someone take the good news and preach it bad? But by the same token, I don't see how someone can take the word predestination and make a bad word out of it when they look at it in light of the overall word. Now, before we look at the scriptures there in Romans chapter 9, those that cause controversy, I'm going to first give you three scriptures that will tell us very clearly what God has predestined for us. Now, these are important scriptures. I want you to look at Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, 29. Now, as we look at these scriptures, I also want you to see the free choice aspect in each one of these scriptures. Like I say, take these scripture references and later mark them there in the margin of your Bible at Romans chapter 9, and, and it'll really, really help you. Okay, verse 29 and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of his son. Okay, now that's good news. I want you to see how God's predestination is to bring good. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, we're not predestined to have something bad happen. We are predestined in order to become conformed to the image of God's Son. And that's how God's predestination brings good. We're not predestined to die early in some car wreck. We're not predestined to have to undergo some horrible sickness or, or live out our life in poverty or worse yet, we're not predestined to have to end up in hell. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of, of Jesus. He, his predestination is never in the negative sense. Okay, now I want you to notice because this is important. The only ones that he predestines to anything were the ones that he foreknew. I want you to look there in verse 29, the first part of verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. You need to circle that little phrase. Those who he foreknew, he predestined. Okay, what does the word foreknowledge mean? What does it mean to foreknow? Oh, it just simply means to know something ahead of time. Okay, what did he foreknow ahead of time? Okay, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Okay, he foreknew the ones who were going to receive his way of salvation. Now, God's not limited in his knowledge. He's all-knowing. He knows the very hairs of our head. He knows every single thing that we're going to do. He knows every single choice that we're going to make. Therefore, those whom he foreknew who were going to make their choice to accept his way of salvation, who were going to accept Jesus Christ, those then are the ones that he predestined to come into the image of Jesus Christ. But do you see the free choice of man there? It's our choice, but the ones that he foreknew would, would make that choice. Then he predestined them to come unto him. Now, the rest of the world is predestined to doom, all right, but it's not the predestination of God. It's the predestination of their own choice, their own will. And you say, but God is sovereign. Yes, he is. And it was God in his sovereignty that gave man our free will. But see, it was God's plan for man to use his free will to choose life. But because of sin and because uh, man loved darkness rather than light, he used his free will to rebel. But that wasn't God's plan. That was, in fact, that wasn't even the permissive will. You'll hear, hear people say, well, God permitted it. No, God didn't permit it. It's either in God's will or it's out of God's will. And when man chose to go away other than God's way, other than God's plan of salvation, that was totally outside of God's will. So it was man's own will, it was his own choice, it wasn't God's, that caused him to fall short of God's blessings. Okay, I want you to look at the next scripture. In 2 Samuel 14, 14, we're going to find that even after man sinned, God did not predestine the lost man to be cast out. I love this scripture. 
It's so special. It says, For we shall surely die, and we're like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Well, that's true. You know, there's going to come a time that man's going to die. But this is talking about the lost man. When the lost man dies, his life is going to be like water spilled out on the ground, and it's not going to be able to be gathered up again. Yet, he says, God does not take away life, but he plans ways so that the banished one may not be cast out from him. That's such a good scripture. Mark that in your Bible. God did not predestine for a lost man to be cast out. Even after man sinned in the garden, God's predestination was to plan a way to bring man back to himself. You know, if I'd been God and man had turned away from me and rebelled, I probably would have said, well, just go your way and do your thing. But not God. He loved us so much that he planned a way for the banished one to be brought back. Okay, so predestination is always for good. Now, and keep looking now for the free choice aspect in all of these. Okay, the next scripture before we go to Romans 9 is in Ephesians 1.4. Now, these three scriptures clearly let us know what the predestination of God actually is. In verse 4, it says, Just as he chose us in him. Okay, God chose us when we accepted the way of Christ. When we're in Christ, God chose us. And he did it before the foundation of the world. Now, remember, he, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. So the ones that he foreknew before the foundation of the world would accept Christ would be in Christ, those are the ones that he chose before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Okay, now what did God's plan before the foundation of the world take in? Okay, his plan was for us to be holy and blameless. Okay, verse 5. God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Okay, he predestined us to be adopted according to his kind intentions. Every intention that God has for man is kind. And then look down in verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Okay, now this lines out God's predestined plan for man, and every bit of it's good. His predestined plan for man is that, number one, we be holy and blameless in Christ, that we are in Christ and therefore his holiness, his righteousness becomes ours. And then in the scripture that we read earlier, he predestined that we become in the image of his son. We find the next thing is in verse 5. It was because of his love that he, his predestined plan for man was that we be adopted and have all of the privileges of an adopted son. And then number three in verse 11, it was his predestined plan that we have an inheritance laid up for us. You know, think about that. I, I want you to look at what a predestination for us to use our free will and come to him, then we're chosen and we become blameless, we become holy in Christ Jesus because of the blood of Jesus, we become adopted as sons of the Most High God, and then we have the same inheritance that is laid up for Christ. We share in his inheritance. See, every predestination that God has chosen for man is good. It's good. 
Every one of the predetermined things that God has for us is good. Only man predestines himself to evil by his own choices. Okay, now with these scriptures now as a background to show that God's predestination is always for good, I want us to look at Romans 9. And I want us to search out some of the things that in this chapter that sound just a little bit contradictory. I have so many people that will they'll take these scriptures in Romans 9 and they'll get into a lot of fear. And I think that's why it would be important if you type up those scriptures we just read and use them as bookmarks in Romans chapter 9. You'll have them typed out and ready. Okay, now we're going to take one of these controversial passages this week and then we'll look at the last two next week. But in Romans 9, starting with verse 15, it says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, so that he may have mercy on whom he desires and harden whom he desires. Now, if you just read that and pulled it out of context, that would sound a little scary, wouldn't it? It sounds like it's saying, well, don't question God. He may harden some and he may show mercy on others, but that's his business and, and so uh, don't, don't bother God. You, you just accept whatever comes along. Okay, now verse 17 is talking about Pharaoh. And we need to ask ourselves, why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Now, by sight, it sounded like God did it on purpose. But I want you to put a marker here, and I want you to go to Exodus chapter 7. You know, I found out that almost 9 out of 10 people, if you asked them, would say, well, Pharaoh didn't have a choice. God hardened his heart to fulfill his plan. And it takes a little searching in the Bible sometimes, but we're going to find that the answers are always there. The truth will always come forth. And so in Exodus 7, verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. God had sent Moses and said, let my people go. And so he's saying, you know, he's not letting my people go. His heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. In verse 15, he tells Moses, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. And you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Okay, God said, You go out and tell him, Let my people go. But tell him, You know, I want them to serve in the wilderness. But behold, you haven't listened. You haven't listened to the word of the Lord. Okay, I want you to look over in chapter 8, verse 9. And Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me, When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? He said, I'm leaving this up to you. When, when do you want me to intercede for you concerning this matter? And so Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. So he said, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one else like the God of our Father." And the frogs will depart from you and from your houses and your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. 
Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courts, and out of the fields. And so they piled up in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. Okay, he got relief, and so now he didn't have any frogs to mess with, so he went back on his promise. He hardened his heart, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. You know, the Lord said he's hardened his heart. He won't listen to us. And he did exactly that. I want you to look down in verse 32. It says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. So again, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. See, God's predestination is based on man's choice. So when God foreknew what Pharaoh was going to do, then he was predestined uh, to go a certain way, but it was his own choice. He made his choice. Okay, I want you to go back to Romans 9. Now I want to make some clarification that I think will help us to understand Romans 9 just a little more clearly. Number one, don't ever quit reading Romans 9 without reading chapters 10 and 11 in context with us. Because if you ever stop after Romans 9, it'll leave a little confusion. But Paul didn't quit writing. When he was writing, he, he wrote right on through. So he wrote Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. And it takes taking it all in context to be able to understand it. Now, we're going to find that he spends all of Romans 10 and 11 explaining Romans 9. Okay, now the second thing that has to be clarified in order to understand Romans 9 is that in Romans 9, God is not dealing with an individual. He is dealing with a nation. He's dealing with the Jewish nation as a whole. Now, that's very important. And you need to mark that out in the margin that God is dealing with a nation here. Okay, now this is summarized at the end of Romans chapter 9. I want you to look at verse 31. He says, But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. And why did he not arrive at that law? Because Israel as a nation did not pursue it by faith but they pursued it as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it was written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him, he who believes in Jesus, will not be disappointed. That word disappointed also means will not stumble. So it says, He who believes in Jesus will not be disappointed and he'll not stumble. Okay, Paul is explaining to the Gentile Christians in Rome about the Jewish nation. See, he's writing to Christians in Rome, and he's never seen the Christians in Rome, but he's writing to them because they had questions about the Jewish nation. Now, they had questioned why so many of the Jews fell away from their own religion. Now, most people will take chapter 9, and they get confused because they don't realize that Paul is not talking about an individual here. He's not talking about individual choices. That's why I said you need to write that out in the margin because you can't apply Romans chapter 9 to an individual. So don't try to do that. He's talking to a whole nation who rejected Jesus as a whole and the results that came was that nation was rejected. Okay, now look at verse 31 and 32 again. It says, But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, 
did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Okay, why were they set aside as a nation? Because they didn't pursue God's plan of salvation by faith. Jesus was the way that God had prescribed, but they wanted to get to God another way. They wanted to come to God by works, and they attempted to get to heaven by works. They wanted their salvation by their good deeds. They wanted to be able to keep the law and make it to heaven. They wanted a works righteousness religion. And so in verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. Now, at the end of chapter 9, it very plainly then tells us what Paul was driving at. He wasn't trying to prove some Calvinistic theory. He was letting us know that he was dealing with Israel here in this chapter, and he was letting us know why they were rejected. Okay, now in most of your Bibles, if you'll look back at the first of that chapter, you'll, especially if you have a New American Standard, it will say Israel versus the Gentiles. Now that's the point that it's trying to make. It's a prophecy that started in Paul's days, and it's still being fulfilled today. And if your Bible doesn't say that, then write it in at the top of that chapter, Israel versus Gentiles. So keep in mind that he's dealing now with a nation. Then we find that all through chapter 11, Paul explains chapter 9. He explains again why Jesus was set aside. Look at chapter 11, verse 11. He said, I say then, they, talking about Israel, he said, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, he's saying, you know, they didn't get lost forever in their choice. And then he said, no, they didn't get lost forever. He said, may it never be. But he said, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Okay, what was their transgression? What was their sin? Not pursuing God's way of salvation. And that's why we're living in the Gentile age now the age of the Gentiles, because the Jewish nation as a whole rejected Jesus. And because God foreknew that they were going to do that, he predestined for the Gentiles, for us to spread the gospel. He gave that job to us. Now Paul is explaining to these Gentile Christians in Rome why God has used Israel all through the years to bring the Messiah and to birth the Messiah. And suddenly now he's going to use the Gentiles to spread the gospel around the world. And, and Paul's disappointed about that. He's a Jew and, and he didn't want that. He's disappointed that it turned out that way. And then he goes on and he compares Christianity to a tree. Look in verse 17. He said, but if some of the branches... Okay, talking about the Jewish nation now. He's saying if some of the branches were broken off, the Jewish nation, they were cut off for a while. He said, and you, talking about the Gentile Christians, being a wild olive. So the wild olive branches are the Gentiles. That's us. He said, if you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Keep in mind now, even if you have to write up above it, the first branch he's talking about is the Jewish nation, the wild branches, that's the Gentile nations. And Paul is saying that Israel was broken off because of their unbelief. And he says it again in verse 20. He said, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. 
Not because God predestined them to be broken off, but because of their unbelief. But he said, you stand by your faith and don't be conceited, but fear. In other words, Paul was saying, you Gentile Christians, don't you be arrogant against the Jews. Because he said, after all, they were the nation that birthed in the Messiah. Now, of course, an individual Jew can come to the Lord. Look at Zola Levitt and, you know, all the, the Jewish people who have come to know the Lord. But as a whole, the Jewish tree limb is severed there for a period of time because of their unbelief. Now, God in his mercy is so long-suffering that as a nation, they're still going to have another chance if they don't stay in their unbelief. And that's what he's talking about in verse 23 when he says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So not only were they cut off because of their choice not to believe, we're going to find that God in his goodness gives them another chance to make another choice, a choice to be grafted back in. Now so many people will take chapter 9 and they try to relegate it, like I say, to a man as an individual. But in reality, God is dealing with a nation, and we have to understand that in order to be able to, to understand Romans 9. So today now, we've researched what God's predestination is. He predestines us to become holy and blameless in Christ Jesus when we've accepted the way of salvation. He's predestined for us to become adopted as his sons, to receive the inheritance that he's laid up for us, and then his predestination for, for an individual is always based on that individual's choice. We're going to find that every time we find predestination, it's based on the fact that he foreknew what that person was going to choose. And then also, if you'll write there in the margin, that he's dealing with Israel as a nation. Okay, next week we're going to continue on and we're going to look at the last two controversial passages of Scripture. And you're going to find out when you finish, when we finish this series, that you're going to have all the notes you need in the margin of your Bible, not only to allow you to know what the truth is, but to be able to help other people. Father, we thank you for your predestined plan for man. Father, I thank you that every predestination that you have, every predetermined thing that you have is for our good. Lord, thank you, thank you for that. We are so grateful. Father, I thank you that every time that there's something that uh, is frightening in the Bible, Father, I'm, it's always because we're misinterpreting and misunderstanding. And I thank you, Father, that the truth is there. If we'll go to your word and dig and uh, allow you to reveal the truth to us. We thank you, Father, that... You love us, that you have a purpose, that you have a plan that you want to fulfill through our lives. And Father, we thank you that we're honored by living in what I believe is the last generation to take your gospel to the world. Thank you that you've given us that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.